Thank you, Andrew. Um, I want to start by speaking to the planning committee. You owe me. <laughs> I, uh, I, th I thought I had a good talk, and then everybody talked it for me. <laughs> so, um, what, what was that? Yeah, it's, uh, if, if I can't be good, I can at least be short. Uh, I, uh, so pray for me, because like my whole talk just is getting rerouted. Uh, Mark, Mark's going to call some scriptures out to me, just so we got something to work with here. I, I was doing great until Chris stood up and said, Peter, and I thought... <laughs> Because I'm listening, you know, it's all great, it's all been good, it's like we're all singing off the same score, but it's just different voices, and it's like, don't go there, don't go there, oh no! <laughs> so it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be okay. I thought one thing I could do is uh, kind of share with you, usher you into a little bit of, uh, you know, the speaker's world, you know, and you ever wonder is, you know, Men are standing up here, and like Paul's got his, his notebook or whatever, and you realize, wow, Paul's been Robert. They've been writing in those things for, you know, forever. It's like, so I, I just, I have a slide. I want you to see what I'm looking at here, just so you can. <laughs> so, so that, <laughs> so that, that's, uh, that's fine. We don't have to look at that anymore. That's, that's kind of my talk. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm listening to, to Paul and to Bill Hightower and others, and uh, they've been like everywhere. And, and my slides, like remember Bill Hightower's slides, you know, uh, St. Louis, Brussels, Paris, uh, you know. And so my slide is Arlington, Massachusetts. <laughs> the next slide is Arlington, Massachusetts. <laughs> Slide after that is Arlington, Massachusetts, and I, you know. And um, after 33 years in Arlington, Massachusetts, I'm moving to Chapel Hill, North Carolina. It's like it hardly, you know. Uh, I, I feel like the the guy at the cocktail party, and I happen to be at the cocktail party where all the other people. Like, there's eight other guys at the cocktail party, and it's the eight guys who have walked on the moon. <laughs> and me. <laughs> you know, so, anyway. Um, where, where I want to start, how many of you have been to Florence, Italy? Anybody been to Florence, Italy? Yeah, I've never been there. <laughs> but, uh, how many of you have been to Italy? I, I just want you, I want you to picture... In your mind, just imagination, um, Florence, Italy, uh, in the year 1300. So, you know, it's not a test, but just it's a medieval city. It's the New York City of that day. The financial capital, the cultural capital, the corruption capital, it's, it's that city. So, you know, just imagine we're in a movie and, you know, you're, you're kind of uh, droning, you got the drone's eye view and, you know, you're kind of swooping down and the, the towers and the turrets and the cathedrals and the palaces. And can you kind of picture that? And there's a guy walking out of the city. A guy walking. 
He's about, nah, he's about 35 years old. And his name is Dante Alighieri. Dante had been the Matt Davenport of 14th century Florence. Um, he, yeah, you didn't know that, but uh, so as a young man, he had, um, his, his first goal was to be a famous love poet. You know, that was the deal, you know, to, to, to write in that courtly love poem tradition. And he had become a recognized and, and celebrated poet. He was, he was good. And his second ambition was to be a, a political player in Italy. And he finally, he got that too. You know, he, um, Florence had a really strange governmental system. Um, basically, there was a council of six and I think they only served for like six months, you know, and then you had to replace them all because there's so many factions, so much tribalism. And, and Dante had been one of the six he had served. And then his, his, his political faction, his party, fell out of power. And he's exiled under pain of death. If you ever return to Florence... We will chop your head off. He never returns to Florence. The city that he loves passionately. He goes into exile. Goes into wilderness. And from that experience of exile. We've been talking about rerouting and all the wonderful ways that we have. But sometimes God reroutes us into exile. doesn't end for Dante. He never gets to go home. And what emerges from his experience in exile is a poem called the Divine, we now know it as the Divine Comedy. It's a poem that has nourished people for 700 years. It's a poem that basically invented modern Italian. It's a poem that helped structure the modern world. And it's the fruit of exile. (laughs) 
So rerouting is not so much about whether I'm going to take I-90 or State Route 27. Rerouting is, and I'm just saying, I'm, I'm singing what's already been sung. It's not so much about the path taken as the person we become on the way and the person we become by means of the way. Like you, I love GPS, right? It's great. But you know what the problem with GPS is? It's very subtle. Problem with GPS is what's in the center of the screen? You. <coughs> right? Everything is defined in relationship to me. And there's something about that that I really love. <laughs> and there's something about that that's really pretty harmful. You understand what I'm saying. I'm not, you know, it's great. You, you get there and get, you get, it's super. But it keeps me in the center. And so rerouting is not primarily about where you are or where you're going or even the specific pathways to get you there. What we're really talking about are not where questions, but who questions. Brian, who are you, really and truly? Who are you in Christ? Church, who are you? Who does Jesus say that you are? And are you living in alignment with that? We're not self-creating, self-made, self-sustaining. None of us ever starts with a blank slate. None of us ever begins as a blank slate. Rerouting constantly poses the question over and over again for you, for us, for our families, our churches, our ministries, nations. Who are you really and who gets to say so? Do you get to say so? Is it your genes, your, your, your parents and siblings, our traditions, our history, popular culture, expectation of others, experts, science, reason, evolution? Who speaks you into being? Who sustains you in becoming who you really are? To whom will you give answer? To whom will you give yourself and for whom will you give yourself away? Rerouting is how God gets us from who we think we are to who God knows us to be. Another word for rerouting is wilderness. And I, I want to get back to Dante for just a moment and read, read the opening lines of this poem. And I want you to imagine this man who had just been at the, the peak of life. You know, everything had fallen into place and then he's go, he goes into exile. So here's how the, this amazing 
14,000 line poem begins. Midway in the journey of our life, I came to myself in a dark wood, for the straight way was lost. Ah, how hard it is to tell the nature of that wood, savage, dense, and harsh. The very thought of it renews my fear. It is so bitter, death is hardly more so. But to set forth the good I found, I will recount the other things I saw. How I came there, I really cannot tell. I was so full of sleep when I forsook the one true way. You found yourself, we've all found ourselves in a dark wood of some kind, haven't we? In the middle of life, sometimes, all of a sudden, we awaken, in a sense, and say, I'm lost. I've, lo I've lost the straight way somehow. Where, where did that happen? How did that happen? Where, where, where did I miss it? So I'm the last person in this room from whom you would seek advice about camping, the outdoors, how to pack, how to hunt, how to field dress, setting up camp, all that. Wilderness, in the way that I'm talking about it, has to do with God's ways of forming us to walk in the way that's Jesus. Wilderness is not primarily about geography or topography. It's about forming you as the you the Father already knows and declares and has made you to be in Christ by the Spirit. Wilderness is where God does some of his best work. Wilderness is where God does some of his best work. Exile is often the seedbed for great fruitfulness. But being rerouted is difficult. God does some of his best work in the wilderness and... Wilderness is a place you can get pretty lost and even hurt. Not because God wills that, but because it's a struggle to find the straight way and walk in it. If my soul is out of kilter in some way, I may have real trouble discerning the straight way from the crooked way because the crookedness is in me. So rerouting requires some discomfort, some disruption, a good bit of disorientation, perhaps even some depression and some discouragement. And if you're here this weekend with any of those D things going on in your soul, disorientation, discomfort, discouragement, and all the rest, take heart. God is very likely rerouting you, and all that D stuff is necessary to start the process. Dante can't write what's arguably the greatest poem in human history without going into exile. Can't get rerouted without first getting disrupted 
And we can't get re-centered without first being de-centered. What's in the center of your GPS screen? So while, as we've already heard, nearly everyone in Scripture spent serious time in the wilderness, thanks be to God, I have one more example. (laughs) Not Peter, not Paul, not David, not Moses, not Israel, not Adam and Eve east of Eden, not Paul in Arabia. (sighs) I was left a scrap. (laughs) Jesus, being in very nature God, did not count his equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, becoming one of us, becoming one with us, becoming like us in our humanity, becoming a servant, becoming obedient unto death, even death, on a cross. Can you see some embracing of wilderness in Jesus' incarnation? Jesus, newly baptized and filled with the Spirit, is driven by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, tempted, tested by the adversary. And as we know, Jesus often returned to lonely places. It's another word for wilderness. To seek his Father's face and to pray. Can you see wilderness in Jesus' life? What's going on? Why does Jesus need time in the wilderness? Is it punishment? Is his incarnation, his life, and especially his death, punishment? No. As John's gospel reminds us over and over again, those things are his glory. Why does Jesus need time in the wilderness? Preparation? Yes. The Son of Man needs preparation for his oncoming work. The one who is eternally God, announced by the prophets, conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb, baptized by John, filled with the Spirit, what could possibly be missing? Time in the wilderness. And can Jesus' time in wilderness also be a pattern? Yes. It's a pattern for us. If the rerouting of wilderness was part of his journey, we who follow him will find ourselves there with him. And what gets tested for Jesus in the wilderness is his identity. If you are the son of God, do this, do this, do this. The adversary is attacking Jesus at the most central core of his soul. Who are you? And who 
tells you that. If the enemy can get Jesus to embrace a false identity, a false self, the battle is over because Jesus will no longer be taking his cues from the Father, but from somewhere else. Henry Nouwen, is that an author you've made the acquaintance of? If not, please, Henry Nouwen. He wrote a wonderful short book titled In the Name of Jesus. It's one of the best books about leadership that I've ever read. And Nouwen, he presents a, a really interesting take on the temptations of Jesus. Nouwen frames the first temptation, command these stones to be bred, as the temptation to be relevant. The world is full of hungry people who need to be fed. The second temptation, throw yourself down from the temple, is the temptation to be spectacular. What the world needs most, right, is spectacular leaders. And the third temptation, all this I will give you if you will fall down and worship me, is the temptation to be powerful. The true battle, the final struggle is over the nature of power and how God's power is unlike anything we have any experience with until we meet him. So can you, does this make any sense to you, these temptations to relevance, spectacularity, power? Your own life and in, in, in your ministries and your businesses, does that have any traction for you? The temptation to be cutting edge, to be relevant without ever asking relevant to whom Relevant for what purpose? Towards what end? The temptation to be seen and noticed and celebrated and revered and spoken about. Be the talk of the town. The temptation to bend the world to my will. To have life on my terms. Do it my way. Is any of this familiar to us? And if the tempter wins with Jesus, Jesus will no longer be God's beloved son. He's going to have to try to become God's beloved son. And the enemy will have him. Jesus will spend his life turning stones into bread because they're always hungry people. Jesus will spend his life healing the sick and, and, and the demon-possessed because the world is always full of them. He will he'll, he'll attract attention and praise by doing spectacular and impactful and big, hairy, audacious things. And he will become the opposite of the crucified one and turn into Caiaphas or Pilate who know something about power. You are God's beloved son in Christ. Okay, now for you, 
the be and beloved and the S and son may not be capitalized the way we do it for Jesus. So you don't equal Jesus. But in Christ, that's who you are. It's who you are now. The relationship that the eternal son eternally enjoys with the eternal father in the eternal spirit is what you are already in on. You are already included in Christ. That's who you are. And in wilderness, when, I, when I'm experiencing all these reroutings, what comes to the surface is who I really am, right? The pressure squeezes out of me. Here's who I am. And what comes to the surface for Jesus in his temptations? Clarity. Scripture. Faith. True identity. Yes, I am God's beloved son. And here's what that means. I am not sustained and nourished by that which can be bought and sold in marketplaces and made by human hands. I am not one who constantly and anxiously puts God to the test because I am already secured in his love which never fails, never changes, and never comes to an end. I am a worshiper of God and I serve him only Depart from me, Satan. Clarity of identity. Clarity of purpose and direction. Clarity of calling. This is who I am. This is what my life is for. And here is how I live in alignment with that. Clarity of contribution. I have come not to be served, but to serve. Yes, feeding the hungry, healing the sick drawing near to the brokenhearted are part and parcel of who Jesus is, what he came to do, but they're pointing to something else. I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. And as we witness Jesus' awful wrestling in Gethsemane, that's his dark forest. We hear him ask, we hear him plead, we hear him beg for a rerouting. Father, if there's any other way. But Jesus doesn't lose the straight way. Nevertheless, not my will. Yours be done. So Jesus reroutes us because, as has been said, oftentimes what got you here is not sufficient to get you there. There's nothing wrong with what got you here. It's just not sufficient to get you there because the there that God has for you is... Bigger is the wrong word because we tend to think too much in terms of bigness. But it's, it's better than, than what, what you thought, what you had in mind. And... It's not just to get 
you know, what, what got me here isn't all I need to get me there. And what I need to get me there is not primarily new information, new skills, all of that's involved. I need to become more. Not so much to do more or to have more. I need to become more who I am in Christ. That's what the wilderness is about. And it's, it's not more in terms of size. Have you ever experienced that God's more often looks like less in our eyes? Does that make any sense? God's more sometimes, all the time, looks like a man on a cross. Where's the more in that? There is nothing wrong with Israel on the far bank of the Red Sea, but more was needed for them to become the people who could possess the land. There was nothing wrong with Jesus that made the Spirit drive him into the wilderness. But as a human, as, as the Son of Man, more needed to be released in him. There's nothing wrong with the church, the disciples on the day of Pentecost. More was needed for them to get from there here to there to there, there. So wilderness is a place of danger and of great beauty, of stress, but also of unexpected refreshment and replenishment. It's an experience that often feels like great loss, but which also contains the opportunity for great, great gain. And wilderness is a place with which Jesus is thoroughly familiar and completely at home. If you're there, he's with you because he got there first and pulled you in. <laughs> Dante, the, the pilgrim character in the Divine Comedy, begins lost in the middle of our life. I awoke to found my, find myself in a dark wood. And he's then rerouted over the course of the poem. He goes through hell, he comes up purgatory, and ends up in the presence of God. Dante's a medieval Roman Catholic. You know, the way he sees things was really right in the year 1300. But his journey was not about him finding the way. It was about the way finding him. Jesus is the way. It's about the way finding us and then shaping us to be the kind of men who can walk in that way. Dante begins in a dark wood but ends up beholding the face of God. And the, the poem ends with this amazing, Dante's trying to describe the Trinity. And obviously you can't do that. But let me just wrap up with how the poem ends. I've, I've read you 
the first eight or ten lines, and now here are the last. This is like line 14,210, 211, 212. <laughs> so he, he's, he's trying to describe the indescribable. And what he sees is some kind of, uh, it's sort of three interlocking rings, you know, and, and you actually, it's, it's sort of like an Escher thing. You, you can't draw it because it, it just, you can't do it. And he says, that circling, which thus conceived, appeared in you, the Lord, as light's reflection, once my eyes had gained on it, gazed on it a while, seemed within itself and in its very color to be painted with our likeness. He's looking into the face of God and our likeness is somehow in there so that my sight was all absorbed in it. And he talks about how I, I, I can't even talk about it anymore and here's how the poem ends. Here my exalted vision lost its power but now my will and my desire my will and my desire, like wheels revolving with an even motion, were turning with the love that moves the sun and all the other stars. His will and his desire are massively simplified to love. All of our reroutings are taking us to the beach that Chris already talked about. They're taking us to that beach walk. Do you love me more than anything? And like Peter, the answer is, yeah, no, kind of, I don't know, hope so, wish so. But the first thing we, we learn about love is that love is patient. And so Jesus keeps rerouting us and it always ends up in some kind of walk on a beach. Do you love me more than these? Do you love me? Do you love me? And the reason that life is a comedy in Christ is because Jesus is good at getting us to yes. Right? Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Jesus is good at getting you to that yes. It just requires time in the wilderness. Because the wilderness just pressures to the surface all of my nose. No, Jesus, I want to be relevant. I want to be spectacular. I want to be powerful. You know what? Maybe not. Maybe I want to love you more than anything. So rerouting is the process God uses to recenter, recalibrate us. The process by which what emerges from our mouths and from our lives starts to sound more and more like this. I tell you the truth, I only do what I see my Father doing. Whatever the Father does, a son does also. I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. 
I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. I always do the things that please Him.